As we come now before the very word of God, ah, it's music to my ears. I hear the pages turning already. If you want to read along with me, you can turn in your Bibles to uh, the first letter of John, 1 John in chapter 5. We'll be here in a moment in 1 John 5. Uh, But before we read, would you please pray with me? Our Lord, as we've just sung, so now also we pray and ask that you would illumine us by your Spirit, that your Spirit would help us to see and give us eyes to see and ears to listen. Uh, Jesus, you've said that that, uh, you would send the Spirit of truth from the Father and he would bear witness to you and, and teach us all things. So would you help us now to listen that we would grow in faith and in hope. We ask all this in the name of Jesus, in whom we pray. Amen. And this is 1 John in chapter 5. Uh, we'll begin here in verse uh, 6, and then read a number of verses after that. So 1 John chapter 5, we'll begin in verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. And there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is the word of God. Now, we've come to the place in John's letter where he emphasizes testimony. So that will be the center of our focus today from the scriptures. We'll look at testimony. John loves to talk about testimony more even, arguably, than any other Bible author. So just in this section, if you were to go through and count, he uses the word testimony ten times. In the whole New Testament, the word testimony appears more than a hundred times, so that's a lot, but more than half of those times are in the writings of John. So we'll see that testimony is really important for John, and he wants us to know that it's really important for us. Now, in some Christian circles, testimony refers to telling your own life story. 
you give your testimony, you, you maybe tell how Jesus fits into your life and save you from sin and all the mess and all of those things. There's good place for that. That's just not what John means by testimony here. To testify is to give witness to a thing to show evidence for a thing, to corroborate a thing, to report on a thing. So we know what this looks like in court, right? Put your hand on the Bible and you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing about the truth to help you God. And then to offer that testimony is to offer some eyewitness account, some expertise on a particular thing that you're testifying about. But testimony doesn't just happen in court. We testify to all sorts of things every single day. We don't usually call it testimony, but that's what we're doing. You know, if I see a grasshopper on the sidewalk on my way to work, and I come home and I tell my kids about it, that's a form of testimony. So testimony is happening all the time. Now, right before these verses here on testimony, John has told us that Christians, people who are born of God, who are saved from the world and saved from sin by Jesus, we have overcome the world through faith in Christ. And that faith does not stand alone. Faith is not just about trust me, believe me, take my word for it, and don't ask questions. Faith is built upon the solid ground of testimony. It's built on reliable witnesses. Now, the report of the testimony, what it tells us is that, that God has given us eternal life in his son Jesus. We'll talk about eternal life next week. That's a big deal. We just don't have time for it today. Today, we're going to look at the source of the testimony, that is, the ones who testify, the witnesses. We see them mentioned here in verses 7 and 8. For there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. So we'll look at those in a moment. But first, we need a broader picture about what God and his word says about testimony in general. And we'll see in this time that there's at least three characteristics of good testimony that we need to know. Those characteristics are that good testimony is doubled, it's examined, and it's true. Doubled, examined, true. That's our structure. Let's unpack these one at a time. Good testimony is doubled. Now, what do I mean by that? We know testimony can come in lots of forms. You know, sometimes testimony is some physical, tangible evidence. Sometimes testimony is a, a collection of, of data or information. But usually, testimony is a person a person who is an eyewitness to some particular thing. But whatever form the testimony comes in, it needs to be able to be doubled. That is, it's confirmed by one other credible witness, at least one other, if not two or three or more. The place where the scripture talks most clearly about testimony is in uh, the book of Deuteronomy. Turn there. 
If you haven't already uh, closed your Bible, turn to Deuteronomy 19, because we'll use this a lot. There's lots of places in Scripture that talk about this, but this is most helpful to us. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, we hear this. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. You need to have more than one. It needs to be able to be at least doubled. And this principle of doubled testimony continues all the way into the New Testament. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that if there's a charge of an offense toward an elder in the church, we should take that charge seriously, but we don't want the charge to continue with just one witness. We need to seek confirmation with two or three other witnesses. Or, he says in, in 2 Corinthians, he says, if there's a serious sin in some member of the church that needs to be addressed, we need to establish that with the evidence of testimony of at least two or three witnesses before we can deal with it. And even Jesus said about himself, he said, if I alone bear witness about myself, the testimony of my word would not be true. But then he says, but my testimony isn't alone. It's been confirmed by many. It's been confirmed by John the Baptist. It's in, even greater than that. My, it's been confirmed by my works who were given to me by God the Father. Even the testimony of Jesus is to be doubled. This is a woven into the, the, the famous words of Jesus. I assume you'll recognize these. You know, when Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. You know that? The sentence gets thrown a lot. Two or three are gathered in my name. There I am with them. Many Christians totally misunderstand what Jesus is talking about there. When he says two or three gathered, he's not talking about here in the context of worship. He's not talking about if we gather in some prayer meeting. He's not talking about whether we gather for fun or if I'm just meeting with a Christian uh, uh, a friend for coffee. He's talking about the context of confronting sin. So Jesus told us that if a brother commits some significant sin against you, you are not to just sit quietly and sulk about that like a child. Nor are you supposed to just forgive and forget and don't talk about it and assume that's holy. Your call is to go and tell that person their fault. And Jesus says, if they listen to you and repent, yay. That's what we want. The goal here is restoration. The goal is forgiveness. The goal is repentance from sin. If they listen, yay. But if they don't listen, then the next step is that you have to come back again with one or two witnesses to confirm the fault. The idea there is not that we're ganging up on a person 
trying to corner them and, and bully them into submission. That's not a good thing. It's just that when there is a, a disagreement between two parties, we don't want to get stuck in a situ- situation where it's just my word versus your word. We need two or three other people who can come together to corroborate the testimony. So if I go to you to confront sin and you don't repent and I go to seek two or three other people to come with me to corroborate that and I can't find anyone else who can, that probably means that I was the one in the wrong and not you. The goal is that if we can find two or three together, they come to bear witness to truth. And when two or three are gathered there in Jesus' name, there I am among them, Jesus says. Jesus stands with the side of testimony that can be doubled. So that's the first characteristic. Good testimony is doubled. Second, good testimony is examined. Deuteronomy, again, chapter 19, verse 18. The judges shall inquire diligently. So in this context of of witnesses, the judges shall inquire diligently. That is, there's a third party who's also doubled. Judges, more than one, not just one, should inquire and ask questions of all the witnesses before them. So how do you know this? Does your testimony agree? Is it reliable? Is there any bias or motive to lie? Where did you get your information? These are good examples of examined testimony. But it doesn't always go so cleanly as that. There's a really messy example of an examination of witnesses at Jesus' crucifixion trial. Um, Mark puts it this way in Mark chapter 14. Where is it? Let me find the section. Verse 55. Here's the account. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Jesus had not been shy the last three years of his life. He had traveled to many places, ministered to many thousands of people, and upset some folks in the process. So now these accusers want to convict Jesus of a crime, and they're trying to find testimony, trying to dig up some testimony against him. But their conspiracy kind of falls apart. Because when he's finally on trial, the testimony that's given doesn't really fit the accusations. The testimony doesn't really fit with each other. There's conflicting testimony of various things. These are not two or three who are gathered together in, one, in my name on the same page. Now, from this trial, they probably would have had to release Jesus, just because they couldn't find the testimony to confirm anything. 
except that Jesus spoke up and spoke on his own. Jesus said, I'm the Christ. I am the Son of Man who will be seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds. He is claiming to be one with God. And they know it. And they assume that that to be one with God is impossible, so they convict Jesus there of blasphemy. They condemn him to death by his own testimony. They jumped to conclusions when instead they should have listened to his claims and actually examined the evidence. Testimony is meant to be examined. Because the main goal of testimony is now this third characteristic. The third characteristic is that good testimony is true. Good testimony is true. Good testimony is even part of the Ten Commandments. It's supposed to be truthful, at least. Commandment number nine, thou shalt not bear false witness or testimony against your neighbor. And that's not just talking only or mainly about courtroom testimony, where you put your hand on the Bible. It's talking about all of our daily testimonies, that we are not to bear false witness, but true witness in all of it. That's including, perhaps even especially in times when, when we might speak flippantly without confirming whether or not a thing is true. Which means if we repeat rumors or gossip that we've heard, even if it sounds like news, that could be false testimony. If we're to click the share button, of something that has unconfirmed information on Facebook or really anywhere online, that could be false testimony. If we're airing out our own opinions, just talking based on little or no experience or expertise, that can be false testimony. And at the judgment, we're told by Jesus that we will have to give account for every careless word we speak. So if we don't know a thing to be true, it is best to keep our mouths shut and our ears open. False testimony angers God. And false testimony wounds others. We're told in the wisdom of Proverbs that a man who bears false witness is like a war club or a sword or a sharp arrow. All those things can pierce. It's no wonder it is so tough to sift through and try to get to the heart of truth for things because our air lately is so thick with waving weapons and war clubs and swords and, and, and arrows. You know, even, even many Christians sometimes have come to care more about getting a good jab at their opponents than we care about listening for truth. 
I wonder if we would take our testimonies more seriously if we thought about the consequences of these things. If we looked back at the Deuteronomy context, if there's an accusation that's examined and found to be maliciously false, this is what we're told is to happen. Again, Deuteronomy 19, verse 19, or 18. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. In other words, if I accuse someone of murder, which is punishable by death, and that's false, I, the accuser, should be put to death. If I accuse someone of theft, for which they're to pay two to four times the value of the thing stolen, and it's false, I, the accuser, have to be the one to pay. Even for small things that are not high crimes, you know, a false witness has the blame of the evil that's spoken turned back upon the accuser's head. God takes testimony very seriously because God takes truth very seriously. Good testimony is meant to bring clarity to truth. It's meant to bring confirmation to truth. That's the point of it. So let me give you an example. After Jesus' resurrection, he's got 40 days, but, so before he ascends back to his father, he says to his 12 apostles, he says, I'm sending you out and you're to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. You're to testify to me. I don't want you to just blather on about your own thoughts, your own theology, your own faith. You're to give testimony to all that you've seen of me, Jesus, the things you've seen with your own eyes in your three years with me. That's what he says to them. And then after he ascends to the clouds, one of their, their first orders of business after the apostles pray together is they realize we need to replace Judas Iscariot. He was one of the 12, but he betrayed Jesus and has now taken his own life. And so we need a 12th. And the criteria of someone who's qualified to be a replacement witness who would be part of the 12 is that that person needs to have accompanied Jesus with them during the entirety of his ministry needed to be a witness of Jesus from his baptism all the way to his ascension, including eyewitness to the resurrection, that they know, that they know, that they know that Jesus is alive. And so of the men that are put forward as qualified, the ones who meet that criteria, there's one who's chosen by Lot, his name is Matthias, and he joins the Twelve to give firsthand testimony to Jesus. That means that the truth of the gospel of Jesus is not based mainly on people who say, listen about how Jesus saved me. That may be true, it may be good, but this testimony isn't about me. 
the test, it's, the gospel is built on this confirming eyewitness testimony about Jesus. They're telling about who Jesus is, what Jesus said, what Jesus taught, what Jesus did, why Jesus came. And the testimony of these eyewitness apostles is doubled, tripled, duodeco, well, 12 multiplied, doubled and then examined, that it could be questioned, followed up, that, that with displays of supernatural power as the apostles are interacting with people, doubled, examined, and then eventually shown to be true. Now, that's what testimony is. Let's, in the last bit of our time here, look then about how this fits into what John has said in his letter. The author here is John the Apostle. He's one of those 12 testifiers to Jesus. He started his letter, which we've called a traveling testimony, reminding us of this. The opener is, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, we have seen, we have looked at, we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That life was made manifest, we've seen it, and we testify to it. That's how he opens his letter. So he is a testifier himself. But now, as he's winding his letter to a close, he names some different testifiers which he calls the testimony of God. It's in our section in verses 7 and 8. There are three that testify, he says, the spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. Now, these are not the testimonies that I would have chosen to name. If I were writing a testimony now, I might say, now there are three that testify. Jesus' miracles, Jesus' empty tomb, Jesus' fulfillment of prophecy, maybe. might say those things, but, but John says these are the three, the water, the blood, and the spirit. What does that even mean? I don't know, is the short answer. The first readers must have known exactly what he meant. There seems to be no question about that to them. But as the centuries have passed, there's emerged some debate about this, especially over the meaning of water and blood. Some people think that that refers to the sacraments, that when we're baptized and when we have the Lord's Supper. Some people think that that's talking about the moment on the cross where Jesus has his side pierced and the water and blood flows out. But I'm not convinced those are fitting as best I can tell. The water and the spirit and the blood refer to the three landmark moments of major phases in Christ's ministry. The water is his baptism in the Jordan when his work began, when he started to heal and teach and call people to follow him. Then the blood refers to his death on the cross when his work is finished when the guilt of all of our sin is paid in full. And then the Spirit refers to Christ's sending of the Spirit in fire at Pentecost, when his work is not just begun and finished, but now extended, when the apostles are sent out and many come to believe. At any rate, whatever these three are, these three, the water, the blood, and the Spirit, testify together 
to the life of Jesus. Their testimony is doubled, tripled. There's more than one voice, and these three agree. That testimony can be examined. We can look on these events. We can probe their meaning. We can ask good questions of them. We can listen intently to what they say to us about Jesus. And then eventually we come to see that they're true that they confirm that Christ is the source of eternal life. These three testify. Now let me land this plane. What are we to do with all of this? What are we to do with these things? There's implied in this section from John a call for us to engage well with testimony. Engage well with testimony. We want that in general, that we don't just believe anything we hear or want to hear, that it's the wisdom of God to compare multiple sources. It's the wisdom of God to examine their trustworthiness. It's the wisdom of God to seek truth more than we seek being members of a tribe. Back when I was in journalism school, we were taught what they called the two-source rule, which is that we were to never publish a story without corroboration from at least two independent sources. That was... the journalism cardinal rule. Now, some groups that call themselves news don't follow that rule. They don't even have two. They don't even have one source sometimes. They'd rather just speculate about what ifs. But whatever anyone else is doing, at least for us, it is good to wait for a verdict until testimony can be doubled and examined before we believe it and share it. That's true in general. It's especially true in relation to our faith. I hear many parents, in particular, fret about their kids when they're close to adulthood, and and they they fear that their kid's going to go off to college and lose their faith. There are tons of books written about this, how to stay Christian in college. And that's not just about college students. Uh, There are a lot of people who fear this for themselves. What if I go to this place? What if I ask these questions and then I lose my faith? Listen, it is easy to get the rug pulled out from under you if all that you're standing on is a rug. But we're not standing on just a rug. We are standing on true, solid ground that is not going anywhere. There are too many Christians who are standing on some version of a rug. This some flimsy, thin thing where the basic fabric of belief is just, this is what my mama told me. This is how I was raised. And that's not good enough to last. That is not a sturdy, solid reason why we believe that Jesus is true. There are many reliable, consistent, 
testable sources of credible testimony that support our faith in Jesus. It's a house built on a rock, not on sand. We don't just hope that Jesus was risen from the dead. We believe the testimony that confirms Jesus is risen from the dead. We don't just hope that the Bible's the true word of God. We believe the testimony that confirms that the Bible's the true word of God. We don't just hope that the Father maybe, hopefully, will give us life in his Son. We believe the credible testimony that confirms that the Father gives us life in the Son. We don't need to fear thinking. We don't need to fear examination as if something's going to get ripped away from us by it. Thinking about testimony especially the testimony of God, is good. And that thinking will bring us to a fork in the road in relation to Jesus, so that there is no sitting on the fence. God has given us his testimonies his signs, his wonders, his prophets, his apostles, his water, his blood, his spirit, and these all agree. God has given his testimony, and we either disbelieve God's testimony and call God a liar, or we believe God's testimony and take that testimony into our very selves we believe it, then we receive life in the Son of God. Pray with me. Lord, would you make us humble and wise to hear. Help us to listen for what is good and true about anything that we hear, especially about your word. Would you help us to listen with great care and with good questions that we would believe you? Thank you for the great gift of your many testimonies. You have been good to us, and we are grateful. We ask this grace in Jesus' name. Amen.